Welcome to the ABA and PT podcast, where I interview scientists and practitioners from the world of precision teaching and behaviour analysis and share their journeys of how they found their way to the science of behaviour, as well as their discoveries through the use of the standard acceleration chart. I'm Mandy Mason, a scientist practitioner in Perth, Australia, impacted by my daughter with autism, who caused me to knock on enough doors to find my way to this extraordinary field. And I'm on a journey to share how precision teaching and the use of the standard acceleration chart can change the world and make it a better place to live. So I've set myself a lofty goal to seek out the giants in the field of precision teaching and ABA, share their journeys and discoveries and influence the work of practitioners who want to be profoundly impactful with their clients and to have the heart to chart. Welcome to episode 16 of the ABA and PT podcast. Now that was a long time between drinks. Sorry for the break in recording. I got caught up on opening a precision teaching cafe for my daughter, settlement of a two-year legal battle to fund my daughter's ABA, and some heavy training in my athletic pursuits. But I'm back. Big shout out to Owen Bayer, who messaged me today to say he'd listened to Jack Orman's podcast and really enjoyed it, and it gave me a nudge to launch this episode, and what an episode it is. It's my honour to bring you Dr. Hank Pennypacker in an episode I've called Try the Chart, which is the advice Hank gives in this podcast to young behavioralists first coming in contact with the measurement of behaviour. Amongst all the other wisdoms he shares in this podcast covering his extraordinary career spanning six decades. Dr. Henry Pennypacker received his PhD in psychology from Duke University in 1962. He soon became interested in applying behavioural principles to the solution of human problems. In 1974, he turned his attention to early detection of breast cancer and led a multidisciplinary research team that progressed from the basic psychophysics of lump detection through materials science engineering of a lifelike training model. The resulting technology has become the standard of manual breast examination and is now taught in medical schools throughout the world. Dr. Penny Packer is a past president of the Association of Behaviour Analysis International. Currently, he is a professor emeritus at the University of Florida, founder and director of the Mama Care Foundation, and chairman of the board of directors of the Cambridge Centre for Behavioural Studies. When I was studying behaviour analysis and reading Johnson and Penny Packer, I never imagined one day I might have the privilege of one day interviewing him. I hope you enjoy this podcast a tenth as much as I enjoyed recording it. Special thanks to my chart friend Richard McManus, who helped me get in touch with Hank, and probably wonders what the heck happened to this podcast episode. But Richard, here it is. Dr. Hank Pennypacker in Try the Chart. So it's my enormous honour to welcome to the podcast Dr. Hank Pennypacker. And of course, everybody that's listening to this will know just what an enormous honour it is to have him on. And I hassled him enough that he eventually agreed to come. And anybody that knows Hank said that he'll be very kind to me in my interview. So I am, and that it will be very easy to interview you, Hank. That is your reputation. So thank you so much for being here. Well, it's my pleasure. I look forward to these things. Well, it's an amazing opportunity to talk to you about your journey and obviously in behavior analysis and also precision teaching and a little bit. I've just been reading your poem that you read at at Og's funeral. Thank you, Bob Washam, for sending that to me and um, just absolutely touched by those words. I'm going to read a little bit of it in the introduction to the podcast later, but but I was hoping that you could start out by telling us like what your upbringing was like, where you grew up and what your early influences were? I had a rather unusual upbringing, actually. My parents homesteaded in western Montana in a place called Swan Valley, which is between the Mission Range of Mountains and the Swan Range of Mountains. They migrated there in 1934 
from a life in Paris, France. So it was a rather dramatic change for them. Yeah. I was born in 1937 and lived the first six years of my life in uh, what essentially is a log cabin. Wow. Our nearest neighbors were a mile and a half away. And uh, we thought we were beginning to experience overcrowding when we could see their smoke at night. (laughs) Then came World War II. And suddenly we were uprooted as my father decided to volunteer. We went to uh, live in California, then from there to Buffalo, New York, and from there to New York City, and then in 1945 back to Western Montana, where I finished grade school. Yeah, and, and what did your dad do? He was, uh, at that time, he was a, a partner in a lumber operation in Western Montana. Prior to that, he was a writer. Yeah. And, uh, and sort of just lived. Uh, he's a he's a professional musician and, and a amateur hockey player. Wow! In Europe, and um, wow, so, so really he had cool. lots of things to do. But uh, he he was kind of a character. But of course, I didn't appreciate that much until much later. Yeah, and were you an only child? No, I had a sister born in 1944, so she was yeah. seven years younger. Yeah. Um, then in 1950, I got uprooted again and attended private school in Seattle. So I went from oh, a okay. one-room country school with five kids in the, in the whole school to a boarding school in Seattle. And that was a transition, but I survived it. And then briefly went to Whitman College where I met Suzanne, my wife, then and now. And um, Wow. Wound up at Duke. How many? How many years have you been married? Oh, it was sixty some years. Wow, fifty-five <laughs> to sixty-three or sixty-eight years. Wow. Um, and we're still making it work. Amazing. What sort of student were you? What were you a good student? student? No, not particularly. No. Uh, I mean, at times I was, but at other times I, you know, got interested in other things. But during those years uh, in Western Montana, the University of Montana. I went to university in the daytime, worked in the sawmills at night. Wow. And I learned from that experience, I did not want to spend the rest of my life working in sawmills. So the faculty there were kind enough to sort of tutor me and said, you know, you have potential for graduate school. Do you want to do that? And no, not really. Well, we think you should. So I did. And long story short, wound up at Duke. Yeah. We had a choice of Duke or Stanford, and at that time, the stipend I was being offered at Stanford wouldn't even pay the rent in Palo Alto. So we wound up at Duke, and that was a very fortunate um, yeah. experience because my mentor, Gregory Kimball at Duke, had, it turned out, taught Ogden in Greg's first year at Brown University and Ogden's first year back from World War II. Uh, I think a seminar in learning. Yeah. Years later, as we detail that chapter, Greg introduced me to Ogden at a Economic Society meeting in 1961. And as the story goes, we bonded almost instantly, but over music, yeah. not particularly over science or, or, or psychology. But that, that relationship grew and grew and grew. And I think one of, one of the really Shaping and most important of uh, my life, my influence. It was, it was fortunate for me 
that I had the training I had at Duke because I was able to really understand what Ogden was telling me, saying uh, he, he would come to Florida on occasion for various reasons. And we would have long talks. And he taught me, for example, first thing I vividly remember was that you can have large N in your data analysis with one subject. Yeah. It's interesting. And parenthetically, I had always been a little bit uncomfortable with what was going on, the research I was doing, uh, which was classical conditioning. But we would always average ones and zeros across a number of subjects and come up with this nice smooth learning curve. And, you know, that does not describe what the individuals are doing. And I said, well, that's the way it is. That's what they're doing. And so who am I to criticize? Well, I've been taught me who I was to criticize, and that sort of laid the track. And the important thing about all that was he gave us, even back then, something that worked. I I went to graduate school with the idea of helping people. And yeah. all my years at Duke, never got to help anybody. I got to do research that was interesting and good, and I got to meet some fascinating people. But to actually get out and change behavior or change someone's life, that, that eluded me. Yeah. And it wasn't until we got to work um, down here with uh, educational pro- problems that uh, – we started to actually see some effect and see some benefit. That was very exciting and still is. And, and what was the first work you did where you were actually working directly with students? Well, that's hard to say because I, at Montana, they, I, they encouraged me to teach an undergraduate psych class, which I did, and I really enjoyed teaching and still do. So in a sense, that was the first, but probably the first, Notable experience was here at the University of Florida. I was sitting in my office one day. Phone rang. And a man identified himself as living in Jacksonville and having a five-year-old son who was autistic. And I said, well, why are you calling me? And he said, well, the lady, somebody, I can't remember her name, but the president of the Georgia Society for Autistic Children recommended you. I said, she did? I said, I didn't even know autistic children had a society. I thought that was their problem. Make a long story short, we agreed to at least meet and talk about this. And I would, I would consult with him, no fee, providing that he would bring data. And so the first session we talked about, well, what's bothering you the most? He said, well, Brian bites his arm. And so we, what can we do about that? So he taught him how to to chart, basically counting time. And next week he comes back with with some data. And that was very informative because it was bouncing all over the place and then looked to be very high frequency. It turned out that he was... He had followed my instructions too carefully. They were setting a timer each time Brian would start to bite. And so they were timing the episode and then counting the number of bites during the episode. Right. And, of course, this gave very high and bouncing frequencies. I said, oh, no, that's too much work. Why don't you just um, count it for the whole day? And he comes back the next week with a very reasonable set of data. And so now we got two weeks. He's been driving back and forth from Jacksonville, which is 150 miles round trip. He kind of liked to get something, you know, to work. So we talked, and what are we going to do? 
And I said, well, and following one of Ogden's prescriptions, what are the natural consequences of this behavior and how can you exaggerate it? So we talked about that and we said, well, geez, if he bites it enough, he can't use it. I said, well, can we find a way to make that happen? Well, I guess we could tie his arm behind his back. Well, why don't you try that? So he comes back, worked. And three weeks later, we had a day of zero. And this is off a frequency of over uh, several hundred a day. Wow. So that, that worked and that got us going. That led to creation of a parent class. He brought all his friends from Jacksonville. They'd come over on Thursday nights and we'd all chart and then do this. So I was really hooked. I mean, that, that, that worked. About the same time, uh, graduate student Jim Johnston uh, joined me in working out a new way of teaching the undergraduate course. We said, you know, it, if we can teach chimps to fly spacecraft, we ought to be able to and, and teach, teach rhesus monkeys to read. We damn sure ought to be able to teach undergraduates to exhibit or emit verbal behavior about the subject matter better than this. And so we designed from scratch a, an individualized program, which we call precise behavioral teaching or whatever. And uh, that worked. And that's still going on in some places. Actually, very proud of that because it produced a lot of the students that now have gone on to become famous. Who were some of those? Well, Wayne Fuquay was one. Uh, comes to mind right away. Bill Hartman yeah. was part of that. Well, I'm sure there are others. I'm, you know, I'm, I do have Parkinson's, and that means that, that long-term memory is not, not all that effective. But, um, You're doing you know, great dates and numbers right now. Well, there, there, were, there were a lot of people who went through that thing, and I enjoyed it immensely. It's yeah. still going on. Claire St. Peter, now West Virginia, was the last person to come through it with me as sort of my you know, right arm. And she's trying to think to get it going at West Virginia. But the whole idea was simply to uh, have people verbalize, talk about the subject matter. Yeah. And the idea was that you should be able to go to a bar Sit out on a stool, and if Fred Skinner sits down next to you, you can you can engage in conversation that won't embarrass you or him. You should be able to talk about the subject matter, and that was their final oral. Yeah. In the course, they would come in and spend fifteen minutes in conversation with me about a topic, a behavioral topic that they chose, and the target was three point five correct responses per minute, and no more than uh, four in ten minutes. Point four. Um, uh, errors. And of course, they far exceeded that, so it was successful. And and were the students um, able to, did you chart their data? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Were they observing their own charts? Did they have access to the charts? Sure, they kept, yeah. they, they kept, they kept their own charts. Yeah, sensational. We, we, would, we would chart and count time during their, their orals, but no, they, they kept their own data. Yeah. The course was divided into nine units. And each unit, there were three levels of performance required. One was just filling the blank. Now, the idea here is to get them talking, verbalizing, talking out loud, and saying correct technical terms. So that was level one. Level two would be a little more abstract, and they would do fill in the blank. That was the first one. Fill in the, they would do short essays, like a question. What is the difference between positive and negative reinforcement, for example? 
and they would write on that. And we would score that in terms of correct and incorrect per minute. Instead, we got those frequencies from the graduate students. You know, we had no idea what would be the, the aims. So we asked the graduate students in the program to do the same thing. We charted their behavior, yeah. got their frequencies, and used those as standards. Very quickly, the undergraduates far exceeded the graduate students. Because they were getting trained. Yeah. Then finally, at the end of each unit was an oral. And they and their manager, their proctor, we call managers, Craig Keller called them proctors, uh, would have a five or 10 minute discussion. And again, counting in time, 3.5 per minute correct, 0.4 or less uh, incorrect with passing score. And then we go all the way through, halfway through the semester, they would have uh, an oral with either me or the overall supervisor of the course. And mind you, this course required, and was complicated by this, but required that we have a group of managers or people who had taken the course and wanted to, you know, serve in that capacity. So they had a class of their own, and we would go into seminar style and the more advanced topics and readings and so on for them. But uh, it was so successful that the university at large noticed what we were doing, wanted us to apply it to um, the whole undergraduate freshman sophomore population. In those days, and I want to get too detailed in this, but it's, it's interesting. In those days, we had what was called the university college. All entering freshmen and sophomores stayed in that college and took fundamental, essential, basic courses. The university at that time had a problem in attracting minority students with inadequate backgrounds, and so it became a kind of a revolving door. And at the point we started with them, uh, 80% were flunking out. You know, they, they come in, they get accepted, and out they go. At the same time, student-athletes were in danger of losing their eligibility. When we were approached about doing this, we said, absolutely not. Not doing this uh, because of the way the university is structured. We can't make it work. One of the great advantages of what we were doing was, in our own course, was that people could go at their own rate and finish early. And when they did, they got to sign up for an independent study course. So they had a, a big reward at the end. The university wasn't able to accommodate that. Secondly, I, I was not going to let it be bound by the academic calendar, which, you know, that, that would do. So I said no. Of course, they prevailed, and we did do it. And we wound up at one point, I think, with, uh, oh, I don't know, it was like five different colleges, actually, and several different departments sending their students through what we call the Personalized Learning Center, and we had structured that kind of like what we had done, not nearly as detailed, but they had one-on-one peer instruction. And uh, bottom line was after uh, two or three years of this, we reversed the, the statistics. So now we had 80% succeeding of the high-risk students, and we never lost an athlete to eligibility. And you had to teach everybody to chart through that process? No, no, they 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 kept track of their own data their own way. Yeah. Putting the chart in that on top of their curriculum. I mean, we're talking physics, math, 
English, other subject matter. Yeah. And one of the policies was we did not do the testing at all. They We would get them ready. You know, we would ask, say, the English teacher, okay, you tell us what you want them to know. Yeah. Give us the materials, write items, we'll get them there. You test them at the end. So that, yeah. was, that was part of it, you know, just ensure the validity of the whole thing. So we couldn't be accused of teaching the test because we didn't know what the test was. It was, yeah. Chuck Marbitz took this. He was a graduate student with me then. He took this to uh, Jacksonville State, and it stayed. It may still be operational there. Wow. We ran into problems at the University of Florida with it because of the problem of compensating what we call the managers, the, the students extra level. We suggested, and I kind of knew this wouldn't all fly, but I just wanted to see what would happen. We suggested giving free tuition based on the number of the level of performance of the manager's students. So if you had three students who all got A's, that would give you three credit hours tuition. Yeah. Well, think about that in a moment. That's that's suddenly rewarding teaching by the effect, by the learning. No, you don't do that in public education. You don't do that in universities. And so that, that didn't fly. And meanwhile, we had other things to do. And so the university kind of absorbed the program. And it continued for a while, but they never quite achieved the same thing. And, and really, probably for that reason, you have to have people at the you know peer coaching level, we would call it now, who got some, who got some skin in the game. Yeah, and that was that was not possible. Yeah, and through this time, how much contact did you have with Og? A great deal. Yeah, uh, a, great, a great deal by phone. See, our first meeting was in 1961. Yeah, two or three times shortly after that, he came to the University of Florida because he was still at Harvard doing the work with B in, in the uh, with the with Metropolitan State folks. But he would come down and give lectures to, um, like, the psychiatry department here. And I always remember one where he concluded by saying, you know, I have given you the tools to change the behavior that causes people to call these people crazy. If you don't use those tools, their blood is on your hands. And he left the room to almost silence. Yeah. He then came, and it's an interesting story, and I'm not sure I've written this down anywhere, maybe in my chapter in the science history thing. Quite by accident, the College of Education Special Ed Department wanted to bring Og in to do a workshop. By now, precision teaching had started. He'd moved to Kansas. Uh, he and I corresponded frequently during that period, but it was it was arranged to be managed, this, this workshop, by a special ed department. And uh, because I knew him, my chairman said, you know, would you kind of shadow them and help any way we can? So it was a joint effort. I said, sure. Well, that was to take place, I think, in March. In January of that year, the special ed guy was killed in a car wreck. So who gets the whole responsibility? I do. So I set up and arranged for Og's workshop. And the format was so he would come spend a day training a select group of people, 10 of us, who would then the next day go out and each, you know, introduce 10 more. So we would wind up with 100 
converts, as it were, at the end of the session. And oh, that's fine. That first day, we learned an enormous amount. I mean, I first kind of already knew this, but not the way he would present it. You know, I had a unique style and a wonderful way of taking basic behavioral facts and making them everyday knowledge. So the next morning, we have we arranged now all these locations where our 10 people are going to go with their 10 people. And Og is supposed to circulate around and uh, see how we're all doing. Nine o'clock comes, no Og. Mm-hmm. 9.30 comes, no Og. And I look at my wife and say, well, I don't know what happened. Maybe he got in the bar somewhere. <laughs> Let's go ahead. Let's just do this. So we did this. He shows up around noon. I said, where the hell have you been? Everything all right? I said, yeah. He said, oh, well, okay. That's, that's okay. I've always thought, but I tried to confront this with him, but never quite admit it, that he deliberately set this up as an experiment to see if I was any good. Could I handle the responsibility of precision teaching throughout the state of Florida, as it were? He never admitted that. He said, <laughs> I, I thought the whole thing was a bust, and I, I just got you know, slept in. Uh, so, okay, so that's how all that started. Yeah. So remind me, what year did Ogden pass away? Uh, two thousand four. Yeah, two thousand four. How um how much contact did you have with him when he was quite sick in the end? When was the last time that you spoke to him before he died? Probably a day or two. He would yeah. call fre- frequently. We, we would talk for several minutes at a time on the phone. Yeah, yeah. most of these conversations were him just reliving past experiences of one kind or another, or current experiences, because he was very much into uh, rehabilitation of yeah. himself. Yeah. So he would, he would talk about his exercise regimens, and he would talk about people he knew who had similar ailments, and he wasn't sure yet what his ailment was. You know, he's still very vibrant, very much alive, and very interesting. It's worth noting, I think I mentioned this somewhere, that his brother-in-law, became my very close friend and an associate here at the University of Florida, Mark Goldstein. Right. And Janet was uh, Mark's sister. Mark Mark actually came up here because he came to visit. Ogden said to him, back up. Mark was living in Tampa, working at the University of South Florida, was getting ready to move back to Pennsylvania where he belonged, didn't like Florida. Ogden said to him, don't leave Florida until you meet Hank Pennypack. So one day Mark calls and uh, tells me who he is in terms of that relationship. And he'd like to come up, you know, and spend some time. I said, sure. He comes up with his daughter. And within an hour, I knew that here's somebody smarter than I am. This guy <laughs> would be a great colleague. He had, he had gone in great detail in doing marriage counseling with the chart. The data were fascinating. And I thought, you know, this, is, this guy's creative. I happened to be acting department chairman at the time, and so I didn't have any influence. But I did encourage Mark to, I, I couldn't give him the job, but I had able to persuade clinical psychology, which is a different department, to hire him. And they hired him into the VA system. Anyway, we got him up here, and he's still here. Wow, he's still there. Oh, he's still there. And we, of course, are, are, have been partners since 1974. Wow. In the Mamacare uh, thing, oh, yeah. which is a whole different application of behavior analysis, in this case to a, a life and death problem. 
Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Telling us how that started, that project started? Sure. <laughs> That's a good story. Mark, Mark and Jerry Stein, a physician, were working at the VA hospital, and they were invited to a meeting sponsored jointly by the American Cancer Society and the National Cancer Institute in San Antonio, Texas. So this was in 1974. The meeting was called, titled, Cancer, the Behavioral Dimension. The purpose of the meeting was to bring together scientists, practitioners, and so on, and confront the problem stated as follows. We now have mammography, which can find very small, identify very small cancers. But women are bringing in lumps the size of golf balls. What can we do to, um, to change that? I think the conclusion of the meeting was that we have to make women less fearful of the disease. We have to make them less anxious. At the conclusion of the meeting, Mark stands up in this group. He would do this and say, I am the husband of a wife and the father of three daughters. And in my household alone, we've got about 4,000 cc's of breast tissue that are at risk. And I'm here to tell you we can do more to diminish that risk than simply learn to manage anxiety. And he sits down with a little bit of applause, a lot of booing. He comes home and says, tells us, me and a group of other uh, behavior analysts, including Charlie Catania, who was here giving a talk uh, on the same night. He comes home and says he had uh, said that. So we're at a, somebody's house for the cocktail party after Charlie's dinner. Mark bursts in and recites this experience. And everybody immediately said, well, hey, that's a problem in stimulus control. Uh, we can teach pigeons to find those lumps and so on. So we said, you know, we should, we should, we should take this on as a, as a project. And the next day, everybody sobered up. Yep, that's, that's a good idea. Let's that's a good go. idea. So we did. And wow. the rest is history. And what year was that? That was 74. Wow. 1974. Just for people that don't know about that project, how, how did it grow? Interesting. First thing we did was, was ask the university for some seed money, and we set up a little laboratory. We were very fortunate in this regard in that we, we as behavior analysts and psychologists really weren't qualified to do any of this. But we had relationships so that we had somebody from the College of Engineering and we had people from, from medicine. So we had three, you know, three different intellectual uh, categories of people, you know, um, disciplines involved in a common thing. We, so we formed a center. We got a small amount of money, seed money from the university, demonstrated that we could make a, uh, a model that would simulate human breast tissue, which had never been done before, it turns out. We would use that model to teach us how to examine a female breast. Uh, again, people at that point had not done this. There was no basic science or applied science, really. The science that we looked at when we did our you know, obligatory literature search was mostly psychology. I mean, social psychology. People, um, we have to teach women to be less fearful. And we have to teach women to, um, you know, take possession and so forth and so on. But nobody ever sat down 
underanalyze what you actually do when you search for love. We've, uh, in our early, very early encounters with women, we frequently, if you ask women, why don't you examine your breasts? They would say, I don't know what I'm feeling for. What am I supposed to feel? Uh, and nobody had ever confronted that. As, as an aside, breast self-examination was originally proposed by a physician out in Idaho working for the Forest Service. He got the idea, he was a radiologist, he got the idea that maybe women could, in fact, examine their own breasts and, and made a little short 10-minute a silent movie showing them how to do this. Well, of course, nobody knew how to do it, so he just did what seemed obvious. That little movie belonged to the government because he worked for the Forest Service. It found its way to Sloan Kettering, Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital in New York, where a gentleman named Arthur Holub, I think, I think it was him. Uh, no, it wasn't Holub. Uh, now, here's where names escape me. But he was the leading <clears throat> surgeon at, at Sloan Kettering. Took the idea, ran with it, and formed that part of the American Cancer Society and got them involved. And that's where the whole flood of pamphlets and all this started. Again, there was no science underlying this at all. It was simply, you know, Dr. Popman, his name was, a suggestion, and they just grabbed hold of it and made pamphlets. We did the basic work, and we discovered that this was an interesting psychophysical problem to start with, and the question being, how small a lump can a finger actually feel? Yeah. You've got to know that if you're going to, you know, design a training system to approach that limit. It turned out we were shocked to discover using ball bearings in a lifelike um, silicone medium that fingers could feel as small as one millimeter diameter lumps. Now, if we add a little complexity to the stuff and make the lumps softer and more lifelike, that, that figure rises to three millimeters. So we said, you know, that's pretty good, three millimeters, because the average lump being brought in for evaluation was two and a half centimeters, wow. about the size of a ping pong ball. So we can bring it down by an order of magnitude. Uh, based on that, those early, early psychophysical studies and engineering studies, I mean, we spent you know, a good year and a half, two years, just figuring out how to make a silicone that actually matched human breast tissue. That had never been done. <laughs> we got that, applied for a grant for the NCI, got it, and we're off and running. Wow. Uh, we had four years of funding on that. At the end of that time, we had a project and we had a technology, which we called Namacare. And uh, Ray, now what do we do with this? People in, people in the healthcare industry uh, wanted to buy the patent. We patented the models. Uh, wanted to buy the patent, but weren't interested in the training. Well, our whole thing was we we're going to teach people using these models the proper way to do self-examination. For example, AC American Cancer Society suggested doing it in the shower, standing up. Uh, we very quickly discovered you don't do it in the shower because you got soap all over your fingers and they're slippery. Yeah. And you shouldn't do it standing up because the breast tissue moves around in various you know, conditions that make it hard to examine. 
better to lie down. Better still to lie down and roll over about 45 degrees so that the breast tissue flattens against the chest wall. Later on, I found a way to communicate this to nurses by saying, if I hand you a big gob of cookie dough with uh, chocolate chips in it, how are you going to find the chocolate chips? What do you do? And most women will say, oh, okay, you, you put it on a table and roll it out, flatten it out. And that's the theory here. If you want to find a breast lump in this medium, that's kind of like a hunk of cookie dough, flatten it out. So we developed as part of our training procedure a positioning technique that had not yet been thought of, except by a surgeon at Sloan Kettering, actually. And little things like that. And so we had all this. We, we applied for and did not get a grant for a clinical trial, which seemed the next step. But plan B was, okay, if we don't get a clinical trial grant, we will take it to market. And we had, by then we had formed the company, Mamatech Corporation, and we took it to market. We went public. We did a public stock offering. Here's where Mark came in very handy because he had connections with the financial industry. So we raised $3 million in the market and went to work. Wow. And what year was that? When you raised 1983, wow. we launched. Yeah. Uh, I remember that because August 7th or August 9th, 1983, I appeared with Diane Sawyer, CBS Morning. The most terrifying moment <laughs> of my life. I mean, a couple of times I've nearly been killed flying an airplane. Nothing is scary as going on that. <laughs> But it, it, it launched and it worked. Yeah. And so Mamacare, the, the technology, and Mamatech Corporation. The corporation has now since been sold. We still have the technology. And we're focusing now on using it to teach, as we put it, every finger, every hand that examines a woman how to do this and focusing on clinical breast exam. Because uh, most women will tell you that if their doctor does it at all, it's really a slapdash, haphazard, sort of frighteningly incompetent performance. And so we're concentrating now on, on doing it. And we're concentrating also on providing it low-income countries like Africa, Haiti, and so on, where there is no access to mammography. Now, you know, there's, there's some economic dynamics involved here. It's very tough for us. And it's, you know, it's understandably difficult to get people to do something with their hands when they lie down and have a machine do it. So, and the machine, of course, puts money in a lot of people's pockets. This doesn't. But the fact of the matter is we can now pretty well convince the skeptic that properly done, a clinical breast exam using Mamacare is as sensitive as that is sensitive, capable of detecting a small lump as mammography. But it's, it's more work and so on. Yet in countries that don't have mammography during any kind of electricity, this is a reasonable way to save some lives. Do you have any data on how many women have been impacted by the technology and by the training? No. I mean, I wish we did. We try hard to get that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we have some anecdotal data. Yeah. This lady and that woman with this letter and so forth. So any numbers of lives have been saved. But oddly enough, when a lump gets discovered, who gets the credit? Usually the, the referring physician. 
yeah. or the radiologist who did the mammography, when in fact, most of them, three quarters of them, are first discovered by the patient or another human, somebody else's fingers. But that, that doesn't serve us. And we are unable, and we have tried and tried, to get tumor registry data that reflect this. And they don't because it's not there. Yeah. The data on who found it really is not available. So that's another one. Yeah. I'm going to jump aside a little bit because I know I only have some precious time left with you. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, in your uh, in poem that you read in, at Og's funeral, you say there are some young and upcoming people in the um, precision teaching world that are going to ensure the chart continues. And do, do you still remain positive that the the chart is going to impact, continue to impact students and learners? And yes, I do. Uh, yeah. Not not at the rate and the rate and acceleration that I had hoped for various reasons, but yeah. Um, I mean, the power of that measurement system, which to me is lies really in the recognition of the fact that, first of all, frequency is the correct measure of behavior. Most of ABA doesn't do that. Most you know, still rely on percentage. But frequency is the proper measure of behavior. And contribution I've made is to point out that frequency over time is acceleration. Uh, just as Galileo noticed that Take rate and over time, that's acceleration and all that. In other words, these really fit the natural science system of measurement. It will become more widely used when it becomes instantly effective in, in more settings and more conducive to recognizable, immediately recognizable academic achievement. And I cite here Kent Johnson's school in Seattle the morning side, and you watch those kids do their own charting and get excited about the growth that they're making and, and then the ultimate change in their lifestyles as a result of their performance improvement. That gives me hope. Now, I'm, I'm seeing your face kind of, oh, dear, is that, is <laughs> no, that the best we can do? Uh, and yeah, I think that is the best we can do. That's, I that's, thought you were going to say something do. about perhaps as technology improves and the response effort of charting reduces, that's where I thought you were going to go, that that the uptake of the chart might be easier for populations outside of behavior analysis. Well, that's true. I mean, the idea of semi-logarithmic display of, of data has been around at least since the 1930s, and the stock market's been using it, you know, yeah. very effectively ever since. So. Uh, there's nothing new. The newness is getting the people to recognize that human behavior follows these relationships and can be displayed conveniently on the chart. And you're right. If the more more we can automate this, the more likely it is to be used in the sense of we will look at and describe behavior change this way rather than by some other more antiquated way. And and derive the benefits culturally of, of having had that description. And um, do you have anything to say about the sort of the, I guess, the conversation that's occurring uh, in the Standard Acceleration Society about destandardization of the chart? Uh, probably nothing that I want to say publicly. I can say this much. A great deal of time gets wasted, in my view, on these conversations. 
that should be directed toward finding new application. It's, it's, it's like, you know, somebody invented a tool. And this happened when the chart first appeared. And everybody, everybody, or not everybody, but a large number of people immediately copied the idea and made their own chart. Yeah. Well, that wasn't very productive. Now we've got noise in the system that doesn't need to be there. I think this attempt to worry about standardization constitutes a certain level of noise to me. Now, I've always taken an odd view that the odd field contribution was point out the value of acceleration and its relationship to the fundamental unit of behavioral measurement frequency. That's, an, I think, an idiosyncratic view. I don't think everybody shares that, and, and nor should they, because that is the scientist speaking and sort of philosopher of science speaking, and teachers and, and physicians and nurses and other applied people don't need to worry about that. What they do need to worry about is they've got a standardized standard in the sense that one size fits all. Standard in the sense it's all the same color? No. Standard in the sense it's the same number of steps up to left? No. Standard in it's the unit of measurement. So, I mean, it's like the centimeter. It would be like we're, you know, we're, we're spending time arguing about what is the correct ruler to measure the length of things in centimeters. When the real issue is let's find new things to measure the length of rather than new ways to make the make the instrument. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. To me, that that's, that's, should be the issue. And where do you see the potential lies? Still, still in education? Oh, among other things. But all, I mean, any field involving human behavior, I've always been excited by the idea of anthropology, cultural anthropology. Different cultures doing different things, all comparable by being charted on the same device. A way to quantify the differences in cultures would make an enormous, to me, step in anthropology as a scientific discipline. Yeah. That's one. And it's really hard to think of all the different applications, and it'll start being used. In our book, recent book that we did, um, Engineering the Upswing, we, we have a whole chapter in there on public health yeah. and the applications of direct measurement behavior and in public health situations. So much of the focus in public health is really behavioral. Drug addiction, for example, uh, spouse abuse, on and on and on. Uh, All of these are behavioral problems, which would, I think, benefit from application of a standard system of behavioral measurement. We're not quite there yet, but we can get there. And here again is a place where where this this can occur. And and when you say we can get there, how how do you think that can happen? It's going to happen by people. Number one, understanding part of our job is to get that message across that this kind of measurement is possible and very useful, and has, if we look at history, has guided success in the basic sciences and should guide success here. And then uh, having people put it in the educational system so that people are taught to do it. And that's sort of second nature. You know, we are taught to step on a scale and weigh ourselves. And we are taught to record that in terms of, of measures of mass. Grams, pounds, tons, whatever. I see now, though, that, you know, as an aside, people are now talking about 
about BMI as a measure of weight. Yeah. I prefer fat. But that's <laughs> yeah. Gee, that lady has an enhanced BMI. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, look, you have covered a lot of topics there. I'm, um, I, I know you have a, a deadline. Is there any message that you want to send to maybe young students that are, are graduating? Now the BACB task list does not include precision teaching anymore. So to young people that are just heading out into the field and coming in contact with percent as a measure, what can you say to them to encourage them to find their way to the chart? Uh, try the chart. Try the chart. Yeah. Just try it. I mean, don't you know? Don't, don't beat it. You know, beat people over the head with it. But try it. See if it tells you something that you can't find from percentage you know, or whatever measure you're now using. I mean, and. I used to have a little saying, add, don't substitute. So uh, I think that's wise counsel here. We just, I don't know, we, we got kind of at a, there was a time in the past when we, we got kind of fanatical about the chart and there was anything to do and don't do that and you're, you're evil and corrupt and so on. If you don't, you don't, know, know, just, just try it, see what happens. And, and why do you think more people in, in ABA have not tried it. Hard work. It's responsive. I, yeah. I, spent a lot of, I spent a lot of hours trying to teach teachers to do the chart. We yeah. learned a lot about how to do that, but it's not easy. I, I don't uh, I, I don't pretend otherwise. But that doesn't make it invaluable. Uh, it, it is valuable. And many, many instances show that it is valuable. And we would encourage more people to be able to share that value. The value comes in part by the, how it's possible to make pretty good predictions. And if you're in, a, in any kind of activity in which you have to anticipate what's going to happen and what's going to happen is behavioral, you're better off if you're using a device which allows you to make accurate predictions. Yeah. And basically, I don't see that the percent measure is going to do that for you. And um, Hank, have you um, have you used the chart? In, and you talked a little bit about some of the health challenges that you're facing. Have you used the chart to help yes. you your own care? Yes, I do. I, I, I keep a daily chart of my steps. Goes yeah. back for several years. Uh, and, and as I've gone through various phases of Parkinson's, you can see them in the chart fairly fairly accurately. Carl Binder was here once, and he said, "Why?" You know, you got a daily chart. Why don't you bring that up to weekly and see what it looks like? And very valuable. So now I do both yeah. daily chart and weekly chart. And the weekly patterns really are illustrative of what's going on with me in terms of the Parkinson's. Yeah. Now, I have not charted the glaucoma effect. I'm not sure yet what to, uh, to you know, what's really important there for me to measure that I'm not already experiencing without the measurement, but maybe that'll come. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough to share all of that. There was so many little gems in there. I, I cannot be thank you enough for coming on the podcast and, and sharing your extraordinary journey. Yeah. We wish you all the best and yeah, I hope one day I get to meet you in person. And um, you've had a profound impact on my life. I've read everything just about that you've published. Oh, and so many good. other 
And everybody that I've spoken to is just what a generous and kind soul you are. And so I can't thank you enough for sharing your time with us today. That's, that's very flattering. And at this age, I appreciate all the flattery I can get. <laughs> thank um, you so much, Hank. No, well, thank you, man, for having me. It's been a Bless real pleasure. You. Thank, Thank you, you so much. What an honor. Thanks to Dr. Penny Packer for fitting me into his schedule and sharing his journey with the chart. So to those of you who haven't, I hope you take Hank's advice and try it. I wished I'd come in contact with the chart elder in my journey with my daughter to help me discover more about her learning and behavior. As Hank says, if you're in any type of activity where you need to anticipate what's going to happen and what's going to happen is behavioral, you're better off using a device which allows you to make accurate predictions. And that device is the standard acceleration chart. So that was episode 16. See the show notes for this episode to find your way to Hank's work, including his most recent publication, Engineering the Upswing, a blueprint for reframing our culture. And I'll see you in episode 17. Dr. Kimberly Burns once said to me, if you don't feel like you're standing on the edge of a cliff about to jump, you might not be doing anything important. Well, in episodes 17 and 18 of this podcast, I definitely felt like I was standing on the edge of a cliff. In the next two episodes, I take the leap into talking about positive behaviour support. Are you ready to go on this journey with me to discuss the anti-science of PBS? I suspect this might be one of my most controversial episodes to date, but it's one that I need to talk about. I have been on a journey with my own daughter for nearly 20 years through severe and challenging behaviour and out the other side. I think I'm adequately versed to talk about the impact and effectiveness of interventions, both as a clinician, but as someone who has lived and breathed severe autism for nearly two decades and advocated for other parents to access effective education for their children. Most recently, I'm delighted to say that I won a two-year legal battle to have Precision Teaching and ABA funded in my daughter's insurance plan in a model in Australia called the National Disability Insurance Scheme, up against a PBS model in Australia for treatment of severe and challenging behaviour. I hope you'll join me in this next episode with Dr. Nathan Blencush on the anti-science of positive behaviour support and a journey in the next few episodes to talking about the rights to effective education. 